0: Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. My name's Andrew Harrison and with me today is Roz Taylor. Ordinarily, we set out what's likely to be coming up in the next seven days, but everything is still overshadowed by the horrific killing of the Conservative MP, Sir David Amos, who was stabbed to death while carrying out his constituency surgery on Friday. Roz, there has been an awful lot of soul-searching over the weekend, a lot of blaming the tone of political debate. Obviously, there's a man in custody and details can only be reported sparingly. But one of the many shocking things about the murder of Joe Cox was that it didn't actually seem to change anything at all. It didn't change the direction of the referendum. It didn't change the temperature of political debate. Do you think the killing of David Amos will affect the temperature of political debate?
1: No, I don't, I'm afraid. And that is partly because, as you say, Joe Cox's murder did not change it at all. And partly because now that it's been associated with terrorism, meaning it's been uh, the suspect is being questioned under the Terrorism Act. That for many people, for most people I would say, puts it in the realm of not me, but as others. It others the act, if you like. If the motivation was Islamist, it, as far as they will be concerned, it has nothing to do with day-to-day political debate in this country. It's a separate issue. And that is why I think more actually than in the case of Joe Cox, where right-wing extremism was involved. I think this, once it falls into the the category, if you like, of a terrorist incident, then people will stop associating it with the state of political debate in this country.
0: It was at least sort of partly heartening to see the leaders of all parties laying flowers, making statements. MPs across the spectrum have said how much they liked and respected David Amos. Do you think this is likely to determine the tone of this week?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, we're already seeing that with Uh, candidates standing down in the by-election in Amos's constituency. Major parties have said they won't stand against him, a decision I'm not entirely comfortable with. What happens with these things and what we've seen the last few days is that there will always be people who try to appropriate tragic events for their own ends. Uh, that's part of the way modern political discourse works. It's to make associations between events and facts that those associations do not necessarily stand up. That's what unlimited access to unthinkable quantities of information lets you do. So people do it. It's you know what QAnon came out of at the extreme. I, I think it's important to ignore the way that some people are trying to pull this into their own agendas. This was a tragic event, and let's regard it as a tragic event, which we haven't yet explained or uh, perhaps will never understand and not speculate about what it means for wider political discourse, because I don't think it has a message, in fact, necessarily for wider political discourse. There are horrific events when MPs are killed. That has happened for a long time. It happened with the IRA and so on. Let's not read too much into this. But at the same time, let's not say that it means we can't have democratic debate and that because something like this has happened, we cannot have a normal by-election because I don't think that's the case. There's an argument for saying that it should still be a Conservative MP in Parliament because that's who the people of David Amos's constituency elected. But there's also an argument for saying that this person will be someone else whom they have not directly elected. And the very reason that David Amos was in his, his constituency su- surgery, is that he was meeting people and he was helping them with their problems. And I think the public electors do have a right to choose the person who sits for them in Parliament.
0: It does seem that David Amos was especially liked and popular in his constituency, and that the circumstances under which he was killed were. So shocking simply because he was uh, he was amongst his local people, many of whom, of whom knew him well. That idea that there is going to be a, a, a by-election in South and West, is there, is there any way this is, is going to be, you know, even if people do run, is it possible for it to be a normal by-election?
1: Well-known by-election is normal by definition. Um, well, you'd you'd hope that some of the nastiness would be taken out of it if uh, it was a full by election. Of course, it won't be. Effectively, only very very minor people will stand against whoever decides to run in David Amos's stead. I think there's been a lot of talk too about whether we should rethink MP surgeries and MP security. And MPs like Rupert Hooker over the weekend have weighed in and said that. It should be police protection for MPs who request it, and that's a very hard thing to disagree with. Although I would mention a comment that Mini Raman made over the weekend that that could deter some people from turning up to surgeries because people sometimes are afraid of the police are in, going to see their MP about an issue in which the police are potentially involved and. That might very well deter them from doing that. So we do need to be very difficult. We, need, we do need to be very careful about putting a lot of police security around MPs. We have seen in the last in recent months, not everyone can trust the police all the time, unfortunately, and we need to be sensitive to those concerns.
0: The man in custody, Ali Harbi Ali, is a British-born Somalian uh, who had been referred to the anti-extremism program Prevent we are seeing an awful lot of headlines of the why-wasn't-he-caught style. It is not possible to be that simplistic, but do we know what the the state of play is with Prevent? Its record is very checkered.
1: Yes, it is very checkered. And of course, there's a review going on at the moment, chaired by William Shawcross, into how effective prevent is. That is an incredibly difficult question because you are asking someone to decide whether things that might have happened didn't happen Mm -hmm. as a result of prevent, whether it prevented terrorism. Extremely difficult uh, question to tackle. But with this, again, I would Urge people to not to jump to conclusions about this particular case I mean there's again The Times reports today, for example, that there is a possible link with Qatar. David Amos had close links with Qatar. He recently visited the suspect's father was in the previous government of Somalia and the Qatar is a supporter of the current government of Somalia. Now that may be a tenuous link which may prove out to have nothing in it, but it could be that anti-terrorism laws per se you know may may and, and, uh, anti- and prevent itself may not have been particularly germane in this case.
0: You mentioned earlier people taking and using this event for their own uh, political ends. Revulsion at the killing has fed right back into culture war material. Social media at the weekend was awash with messages blaming all immigrants, even more so than usual. Is this something that political leaders and dependable voices can do anything about? Or are we now stuck with the idea that social media will always express the worst ends of people's political instincts and we simply have to treat it for what it is, you know, Twitter is not the world and so on?
1: Well, political leaders can help by not sending out dog whistle messages, which they do occasionally try to do, as I said, to exploit tragic events for their own ends. And there are scales of doing that. You know, there's everything from calling them all to go home, as you put it, to, to just sending out a little message, which indicates which side you're on. And I think people should try and refrain from doing that. Um, personally, you know, I would I would not, and I have nothing to say about the murder of David Amos, except that it was a very tragic event. And I would not dream of weighing in on that basis with so little knowledge about what was going on. I think if other people could also refrain from it, that might help.
0: There are other things coming up this week. Dominic Raab has announced that the government will overhaul the Human Rights Act to, he says, correct rulings by the European Court of Human Rights. He told The Telegraph, we want the Supreme Court to have a last word on interpreting the laws of the land. And in the same interview, he said that the government would legislate on specific matters if decisions went against them. Ross, this didn't get huge attention, but it is quite a big deal, isn't it? The idea that a government can correct court rulings kind of goes against the point of courts.
1: Yeah it's a very big deal and of course it goes to the heart of the separation of powers which uh, it's basically saying that the executive can overrule um the courts and that is something which we ought to be debating much more deeply the problem of this of course is that for the, since we've been a member of the EU EU uh, ca- EU cases have played into into case law in this country naturally because Judges have considered what what has happened in the European Court of Justice and the European Court of Human Rights, which of course is not part of the EU, when making their decisions. And it is very difficult when you have a legal system that works on the basis of precedent and case law to just throw away all those precedents. But ultimately, it looks as though that is what the government would like British judges to do, English judges certainly, which is pretty alarming. And I think judges will be fairly horrified at the prospect that their judgments could be overruled in this way.
0: Judicial review itself is under review and you wouldn't bet a lot of money on increased relevance for the Supreme Court, would you? Any idea what sort of timetable we're on here? Because it's one thing to announce something as a bit of red meat in the Telegraph, another thing to actually introduce it into law.
1: Well, this is what some people have been asking over the weekend. How is it that the government, besieged on all sides by the issues that it has at the moment, which are, you know, multiple, how is it that government, especially the Justice Department, which has a huge backlog of cases to get through, and people waiting years and years to have their cases heard? How does it have time to pursue this kind of agenda? And We can only hope that it won't eventually have time to pursue this kind of agenda before it leaves power. But given what we've seen, it may be that the government is still capable of putting the basic administration of justice and of getting cases through the court and funding that properly and ensuring it happens, putting that below what is essentially an ideological spat.
0: Meanwhile, uh, COVID cases are rising again to a seven-day average of 35,900, the highest since July. And there is a brewing scandal of a PCR test. Some 43,000 people may have been given a false negative result, according to the UK Health Security Agency. Roz, you run the LSE COVID blog. What, what's happening here? This is like a 10% failure rate uh, on this particular lab.
1: Yeah, this is very bad. And it does seem that cases are positive cases are rising in areas where... This lab in Wolverhampton, which seemed to have been mostly in the southwest and south Wales, where those areas sent their cases to be processed. It's impossible to say at the moment who is to blame or why it happened, but the overall effect, of course, has been to drive up cases further because people who were told that they had a PCR test that was negative then didn't need to isolate. And so they could have gone around spreading COVID, despite the fact that they would have been, they probably were positive on a lateral flow. So this is really thrown a spanner in the works of the government's efforts to try and keep cases to a reasonable level. Although it is worth saying that Chris Whitty's avowed strategy over COVID is to try and have a large number, relatively large number of cases now get more immunity in the community so that things wouldn't be so bad in the depths of winter when respiratory viruses like COVID, like flu, spread even more easily. And we will see, of course, whether that strategy pays off. But at the moment, the comparison that we see with Britain and comparable countries is that Britain's cases are a lot higher.
0: People are already visibly losing interest in masks. From what you know from running the COVID blog, is uh, a sort of commitment to testing also on the fade? I mean, there, there is a kind of, seems to be an increasing belief that, you know, COVID is done and a part of the past, even though cases are rising.
1: I don't know about that. Our case, uh, our testing is relatively speaking higher than the EU, uh, most of the EU, and that's worth bearing in mind. But I think our case is, testing in higher is, is, is in part, the fact that it's higher is in part because there are more people with symptoms out there getting the tests. One of the problems has been the vaccine rollout for 12 to 15 year olds, which has been much slower than the government hoped. This has been different from other. Age groups, because with other age groups, you could go and drop in and get the vaccine whenever you wanted. This has not been allowed in the case of 12, 15 year olds. You've had to wait for schools to organise the jabs. And as anyone who's been involved in approving, uh, as a parent, approving a jab for a school aged child, this is an extremely long process involving filling out forms and getting parental permission, all the more difficult in the case of COVID. So the result is that only about, I think, 12, 14% of English 12-15 year olds have been jabbed the rollout has been much more efficient in Scotland where about 44% have been jabbed So that has undoubtedly as well led to a rise in schools. And I have to say that when it comes to masks as well, it it does stick in the craw to see my daughter having to wear a mask six and a half hours a day nonstop at school. And yet people who are asked, required to wear masks on public transport and in asked to do so in venues don't do so at all. It really is another case of kids paying the price of older people seemingly stopping caring.
0: Britain has lost its uh, lead in terms of vaccination uh, against the rest of the world. Cases are rising. We're already one of the worst performers in the world. We've had this sort of spectre of a bad autumn and you just mentioned Chris Whitty's strategy for it. Are we likely to have that bad autumn that we were warned about?
1: Yes, I think the NHS is under a lot of pressure as well with flu. The hospitalisation rates for flu are already higher than they would normally be at this time of year and I'm not counting last year because obviously there were far more lockdowns, so flu didn't basically didn't spread much at all last winter. Those pressures are going to mean that what you regard as a winter health crisis in the NHS, a winter crisis in the NHS is going to be even worse than usual. And of course, that will have a knock on effect on all the millions and millions of operations and procedures that have been postponed because of lockdowns because of COVID. It's not looking very good.
0: No, I mean, still on medicine as well. So Jude Javid has announced a right to a face-to-face meeting with your GP and a £250 million package to encourage this. He's also announcing league tables for the performance of, uh, of GPs. Angry GPs have been all over social media talking about what that would really mean which would be people presenting with headaches or blocked noses or, or a hangover or a sore thumb. They are very much not into this. It seems to be pretty much another bit of red meat for the Daily Express and the Daily Mail. What do you know about this? How is it likely to shape up, do you think?
1: I think to a certain extent, it's the government trying to distract attention from its failure to plan and ensure enough GPs are in their jobs. There is, as always, a shortage of GPs. And it's very, it's very hard to recruit GPs quickly, clearly, because they take a long time to train. And they are also formally independent of the NHS, which means they're harder for the NHS to manage. I mean, I don't think every GP, we shouldn't We shouldn't say that everyone thinks the same way. You know, I was talking to a GP a couple of weeks ago who said, actually, I miss face-to-face meetings when someone comes in with a Veruca. There's often something much worse going on and I won't spot it if they're not in person. I also think that... It can be very difficult for people to express themselves over the phone in a way, in the same way that they do in a GP surgery. When I think in particular, without wanting to sound too aged, (laughs) when I think in particular about the way young people communicate on WhatsApp and so on and, and social media, actually picking up the phone and talking to someone is not something that younger people especially do a lot. And they may have a lot of difficulty, particularly when they feel under pressure talking to um, a GP, in expressing what they want and just want to bring a quick end to the call. I wonder if that is playing into things as well. It's worth thinking about. So although, as I say, the government is undoubtedly trying to distract attention from its own failures by focusing on this face-to-face issue, and although there are undoubtedly big efficiencies to be gained from triaging patients and making sure that some of them don't need to see a GP and that, you know, those that don't need, to, if you can do that efficiently, that's great. But um, there are cases that fall through and we should be mindful of that.
0: Finally, in the wider world, uh, it looks like Joe Biden's clean electricity plans are in ruins because of the obduracy of West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. The $150 trillion program to move to clean energy over coal is now scrapped for the sake of Manchin's constituency of coal workers. There is a grand total of 75,000 people in the coal industry in the entire United States. Roz, this is quite enraging. Manchin gets half a million dollars a year from coal interests. It seems to have a veto over what ought to be and his. Historic change in U.S. energy provision. It's also going to send Joe Biden into COP26 looking very much like he's failed to deliver on the main thing he needs to deliver on. This it is just very depressing, isn't it?
1: It is depressing. It's no good pretending we don't have the same tensions here. There's a mine in Whitehaven in Cumbria where local councillors have argued that they need to mine that coal in order to make to make steel, make the energy to make steel, which is necessary to build new greener infrastructure. There's always some kind of logic to explain why you need to be an exception. And that's why I think you need to be specific about what you're offering local economies that depend on coal and gas. And you need to say, well, yeah, you there will be jobs lost, but we have this lined up for you. This is our plan. This is what you will get instead. Because otherwise, people will fight tooth and nail to resist change. And it's hard for us in this country to imagine what it's like to live in a state that has been so dominated by coal as West Virginia. And the New York Times did a lot of reporting on just how polluted West Virginia is. And it makes you wonder why don't people want to move away from that? Well, the reason is that they just don't see an alternative future. That has been what they have depended on. And you really have to be mindful of that when you're saying all those jobs are going to disappear.
0: It's also looking this week like we'll find out whether China or India will be coming to COP26 at all. So we should know by the end of the week whether Boris Johnson's major showpiece of global Britain is going to be dead in the water or not. Roz, thanks for getting up early and uh, explaining what looks like not a particularly cheery week to us. Thank
1: you. Pleasure as usual
0: listeners thanks for listening don't forget if you found the podcast useful please forward it to three friends using the little share button in your app it will help spread the word about the bunker and if you want to take the relationship to the next level you can always back us on patreon for early episodes without adverts interrupting them merchandising and much more thanks for listening we'll see you next time
1: the bunker daily was produced and presented by andrew harrison The assistant producers were Jacob
0: Archbold and Jelna Sofraniewicz. An audio production was by me, Alex Rees. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.